Welcome to the ENJ podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Dr. David Hildick-Smith, Professor of Cardiology and Consultant Cardiology at the Sussex Cardiac Center, holding both posts at the Brighton and Sussex University Hospitals on the very beautiful south coast of the United Kingdom. David attended the King's School, Canterbury, and obtained his undergraduate degree from Pembroke College in Cambridge, and then his medical degrees from the London Hospital Medical College. Other degrees followed, including his MD thesis in 2002, and fellowship of the Society for Cardiovascular Angiography and Interventions in 2006, and fellowship of the European Society of Cardiology in 2017. David's been very active as a clinician and researcher, as we shall hear shortly, with 320, yes, 320 peer-reviewed publications. I feel like an utter sloth in comparison. He has received countless honors, including the National Gold Clinical Excellence Award in 2018. David is married with four children and has a very interesting background in music, and I'm going to start off by asking him about that. So, Professor David Hildick-Smith, what a joy to have you with us today. Well, thank you ever so much for, uh, for inviting me. I, I, thought, I thought I was listening to my obituary. <laughs> you know, I've always thought if, if you know, it, it, it's a bit of a tagline, but if someone in, yeah, my, my CV is nowhere near as grand as yours, but if someone gave me a nice introduction at a meeting, I would always yeah. come up and say, I'd actually like to die right now with my words <laughs> ringing in my ear. <laughs> so talking about ringing in ears, um, the synergies between music and medicine are rich and deep and apply to you. So I'd like you to tell us about the student band you played in with the intriguing name, President Reagan is Clever. And also one of your daughters is a very well-known uh, folk pop singer, Bess Atwell and songwriter. And you also write pian piano music. And uh, quick plug, you can be found on Spotify under the tag The Long Room. I can attest it's beautiful stuff. So, David, start off just by telling us about your musical journey. Um, yes, I suppose I've always been interested in fiddling around on the piano and composing little ditties and things like that. And so I was in a, a student band with several great friends and the, the name of the band was hatched by uh, my great friend Tom Morris and me. Uh, it was obviously quite a silly name, you know, we were called President Reagan is Clever, so I don't think we were ever going to challenge the top echelons of the pop hierarchy, but it, it was great fun and we, we greatly enjoyed playing. We got to play with in a Mayball and we got to play with, you know, some quite, uh, some quite big bands at the time, Talk Talk and The Fall, so that was so that was very exciting, and that that was my my sort of journey through um, modern music and pop music, and 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 then I had to stop really because I was well working, I suppose it was a bit of a toss up in a way between whether I pursued medicine or or music, but I probably took the wise choice. And you and you still do um, you still do write and the. Um, I'm trying to imagine what the, the your performance days with President President Reagan is clever was like, but the current stuff is very mellow and very very soothing. <laughs> That's very kind. Yes, the previous stuff was neither mellow nor soothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we all enjoyed that kind of music. Well, good on you. And um, I was listening to some of your daughter's work, Bess Outwell, 
Uh, yes. Very, very talented young lady. Very impressed. Yes. So let's let's look at another kind of journey. I always like to understand how people went on their journey. What sparked your interest in medicine? And specifically, what took you into cardiology? Uh, well, medicine was a bit of a sort of, you know, uh, sine qua non, you know, I, I must go there because everybody else has. And I sort of r- railed against that rather. So my mother and all my three sisters are all uh, have all been doctors. Um, so I really didn't really want to be a doctor. I wanted to be an astronomer. Um, but then there wasn't a, a real course. And even at a young age, I sort of realized, oh, astronomy probably isn't much about looking at the stars. It's more probably about looking at computers. So I ditched that. And I did medicine, but rather reluctantly all the way through. And I was a pretty poor student. And I tried to take a year out to do music. Uh, eventually, I sort of passed the exams and, and, and got through. And then, funnily enough, when I actually started being a doctor, finally... I found I rather liked it, being able to, you know, chat to and help individual patients with, as a houseman, rather small problems. Yeah, it's, um, in my story, I, I always thought I was going to be um, a, a clinical pharmacologist because I had, had this very inspiring teacher. And then I did a surgery firm and the surgeons were the cool guys. They were just, they were cool and fun and jolly and they were taking yeah. sick people and with a you know, the whip of a knife, um, their problems were resolved or certainly improved. So I was influenced by people. Was there anyone in your, um, uh, in, in your journey that, that sort of one or two standout people that you, you're thankful to? Yes. So, so by the time I had become a cardiologist in training, and there were a couple of people that stood out for me. One, one was Len Shapiro, who is, uh, a, um, doyen of interventional cardiology in Papworth, who had himself probably taken an unconventional route. He wasn't the traditional sort of posh public school boy who got through to the upper echelons. He, he, I didn't really know Len's story exactly, but he, he wasn't of that type. And he had nonetheless got to a position of extreme seniority and was an incredibly skilled interventional cardiologist. I used to stand next to Len when, when he was doing something, and I'd ask him, how did you do that? I don't really understand how you did that. And he'd say, he'd think about it for a bit, and he'd say, yeah, I don't really know, but I did it. <laughs> you know, so he was a real flair player. He was just great at doing interventions. Anything really complicated or difficult, Len was the person. So that, that really impressed me as a, you know, as a trainee. I thought, wow, how fantastic to be so dexterous and skilled to be able to visualize what it is you're trying to achieve and then achieve it. Um, And then the other person I think that I was particularly grateful to and and impressed by was Michael Petch. We couldn't call him Michael because he was too lordly really for that. So he was always known as Dr. Petch. And he, I think I I owe him a debt of gratitude because he took a real punt on appointing me as a registrar, because I'd had a rather lackluster and circuitous route into this. I had I'd been a journalist for a year after qualifying in medicine. I'd done anaesthetics for a year. Uh, I'd been to Spain to live in the mountains for a few months. And it, it really wasn't the standard trajectory for somebody applying for this job. But I think he had 
he had several times appointed people who were slightly off the standard track and and he took a he took a punt on me and we got on really well and he was a great teacher and a, and a really terrific clinician you know working out what was wrong with somebody and what should or either shouldn't be done so i suppose those two people particularly stand out for me there was a marvelous uh, podcast series um i'm blanking on her last name the podcast was called listen to laura or listening to i'm sorry lucy listening to lucy and she was um, a journalist for the FT. Oh, yeah. um, and she would do five-minute sort of rants. She always came across as terribly British and terribly commercially and terribly articulate. And <laughs> it was a sort of a sign of, um, uh, you know, wordy, unnecessarily voluminous uh, corporate reports. But one thing that she pointed out was that there was a study that demonstrated that the only important thing on a curriculum vitae was other. And it's the one thing you're not supposed to, certainly in America, ask about. As in, what else have you done? What are your hobbies? And it always struck me in medicine, you know, we're in health care. The component of that care implies that you can connect with people. It doesn't matter how damn good your diagnostic or therapeutic abilities are yeah if you're if you're a cold soulless individual you can't provide care so do you not think that your rather interesting renaissance man background actually positioned you very well to be uh, an instigator of uh, a change agent in medicine yeah i think i mean in, on reflection i really do agree with you actually and i think if you have had a broad experience of highs and lows and being miserable and having difficult experiences and things like that, it really does help you empathize with people individually. And actually, that's one of the things that I think is um, is is missing sometimes in, in modern medicine because people are so scared of not making the right diagnosis or, or not following the guidelines, that sometimes they forget just to listen to what the patient is saying. Yeah. And actually, quite often, if you, if, if you engage with somebody and just listen to them properly, you can help make the right decisions with them. And they may not be, in any sense, according to the guidance or the um, uh, accepted wisdom, but but they will be right for that particular person. So I think it is it is something that you know broader broader life experience and and then coming to medicine in a way is is a really good thing. Yeah, I think we should do more of it. A, a pal of mine recently had um, a triple uh, a triple bypass and an aortic valve done by a very yeah. very gifted uh, surgeon and looked after by a very good cardiologist, uh -huh. but. Uh, I, I went and had dinner with him recently, and the one thing that hadn't been taken care of was his dis-ease. His disease was treated, but his dis-ease had not been addressed. And, yeah. you know, what's the rest of my life going to be like? And, you know, I ended up sitting and chatting to him about post-operative depression and yeah. concern about, you know, what can I now do if I you know, have sexual relations and yes. is that going to, am I going to drop dead? So, yeah, I've been being connected to your patients is critical, right? 
Yeah, and often you know you don't have that much time. Sometimes in the in the NHS, you know, there's there's a lot. It, things get done very quickly. You know, you you put a new valve in somebody, you see them in the evening, they're okay. You see them in the morning, you say home, and 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 it's all a bit of a shock. And so sometimes people are a bit sort of uh, uh, unsure after all of that. Oh, uh, what can I do now? And you know. On the one hand, getting people treated quickly and throughput is really good because with limited numbers of beds, it, it enables you to treat more people when the waiting lists are long. But at the same time, sometimes people have just come in, for example, had their heart attack treated, stents in, off you go, bang. And, and they're, they're quite sort of discombobulated by it, understandably. And, and you know that they're going to find it very difficult to adjust. Because they've spent weeks thinking, you know, am I going to die? What's this yeah. going to be like? What's my and and you're right. The, there needs to be a transition. Well, we should we'll, we'll talk more about that in a, in a couple of minutes. But uh, uh, as another aspect to being a clinician, um, a modern clinician, you've been a very prolific investigator and author, as well as yeah. a very busy clinician. And I want to yeah. get on to that in a minute. And I know that you've examined and supervised a large number of theses. What are your thoughts about clinicians as scientists? Because back when I trained in surgery, one, it was considered you know, de rigueur to do research, to publish, to present at meetings, a whole range of activity, and do lots of cases and learn you know, how to have a good set yeah. of hands. And I know in my area, some people suggest it's now passe for practicing clinicians to also do science. What, what are your perspectives yeah. and, and how does cardiology view this subject? Yeah, I think it's really difficult. I mean, on the one hand, um, we make generally pretty terrible scientists as a as a rule because we dip into it for a few years. It does allow us to understand the complexities and difficulties of doing some proper science well, but mostly we sort of dabble in it and then the majority of people quite gratefully put it down and, and don't really go back to it. And a lot of what we do and publish is, is not what pure scientists would consider strong evidence or, or high quality data. Um, and, and on the other hand, what the, what the science part of a, uh, a postgraduate course offers is is rather punitive in some respects in that it's it's a test of endurance um you know the, getting an md is not an easy thing to do and it requires a great deal of tenacity and determination when you suddenly instead of being a useful member of the team who can do helpful things you're kind of slightly cast adrift and said you know create an md for yourself with a bit of supervision and those that come through that process have then proved themselves um, determined and diligent and able enough to, to go to the next step. And I think that's where it started. And there is, you know, in cardiology, it's still required of you to get a, a good consultant job. I feel slightly ambivalent about it because it, it, is a, it is a bit of a weeding out process and it often doesn't generate a great deal of very good science but at the same time it is quite a good discriminator between those who 
who do or do not have the determination. Yeah, it it always struck me. And when I I lived and worked in the States for many years, and I used to run a journal club for the, the residents and would usually, you know, often do it at my place over over pizza and beer. And they were quite surprised when I told them that their brief uh, in presenting a paper was to rip it apart. Yes. <laughs> Very British. <laughs> and they were completely stunned. I mean, it was all supposed to be terribly... They, they thought that we were the terribly polite kind and that they were supposed to be the aggressive sort. said, so, no, I want you to think critically. You know, you can assume... I'm, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that the authors had ill intent, but maybe they were mistaken. Maybe they misread the data. There is a tendency, isn't there, to publish positive data? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at modern what's published, there's a huge amount of um, bias within it in terms of you know, the pharmaceutical companies or the device companies pay essentially for the research to happen. So there is a positive cognitive bias, if you like, in what comes out and what appears at the end. So it's really important to be able to stand back and understand that when interpreting the the results of a study. And, and part of the m- most common problem currently is that because we live in an era of information overload, all people end up getting is the bite-sized summary of the trial evidence, often presented on a website, sort of saying X drug or X therapy fails against something else, or X therapy proves much better than something else. And that's that's all people get to remember. And so, you know, the, the art of dissecting and understanding the process of what patients actually went into the study, how many were not selected because they were unsuited to the outcome that the funder was hoping for, you know, and being able to see and understand those things to be able to have a critical analysis of what has happened is really important and and is a little bit being lost in the barrage of information that we all receive daily. Yeah, there was, uh, and I'm, as, as you were speaking, I was desperately trying to recall where this was published. But a number of years ago, um, there was a really fascinating article where they culled papers from a bunch of top tier journals and looked at disparities between the abstract and the body of the paper. And sometimes they were just minor, you know, errors. You know, you, you, you get the galley proofs back. You have tw- you wait six months to get the galley proofs, and then you have twenty four hours to correct the galley proofs before you send them off. And yeah. um, people, you know, make mistakes. We're human, but sometimes the disparities were profound and really yeah. important. And it, it made my flesh run cold because, you know, being a busy chap, I tend to just largely read the abstracts unless the article really, really uh, makes me question my belief system. Do you think that's a common problem, or? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I usually say to people when they're when they're trying to write a paper, I say you have to remember that the the person reviewing it will read the title, then they'll read the conclusion of your abstract, then they'll read the abstract, and even the person that's reviewing it may only skim. 
some of the stuff that's in the rest of the paper and then look at the tables and figures because it takes it takes a long time to do these things really properly and people have a lot of demands on their time and definitely people who actually read the papers will read only a fraction of the information and as as you said it, unless something is very specifically in my absolute specialty focus i won't read the whole paper and i will assume that the editors and the reviewers and people like that have done their job whereas actually i know and been the reviewer of course that you you know you, you only have a certain amount of time to be able to devote to these things so um it's it's it, it, it is a problem you know we we take the the headline answer and if we remember anything that's that's all we remember yes uh, um, so i want to come on to some of the the clinical aspects of of your life and I think it was 1977 that Andreas Grunzig performed the first coronary artery angioplasty. And since then, your specialty your special has, please forgive this very deliberate pun, ballooned. So <laughs> two questions for you. Have the interventional approaches to valve disease, for instance, allowed more patients to be treated who otherwise wouldn't have been fit for uh, an open heart? And how have interventional cardiologists coexisted with cardiac surgeons whose work, dare I say it, you've largely taken over? Yeah, those are great questions, actually. Um, in terms of the aortic valve in particular, yes, we can do and have done procedures and continue to do procedures on lots of patients who otherwise would have died. Uh, in fact, we did one yesterday on a man... I was particularly uh, struck by who was only 69, but he was absolutely an extremist with a valve, a surgical valve that had already been put in, falling apart. He was low in blood oxygen. He was quite confused. His kidneys were starting to give up. His liver was starting to give up, but it was all because the valve had just disintegrated. He could never have had surgery, even though he's only 69. And we put a new valve in him yesterday. And this morning, he's very substantially improved and, and should, should do well. Um, and yes, there are lots of patients. In particular, though, the aortic valve work has focused largely on elderly patients. So patients maybe the average age would be 82 or something like that. So there are lots of patients who are having a new valve who wouldn't definitely not have had one before. Um, and our challenge, if you like, has always been and remains trying to identify with the patient, is this a sensible thing to do? Because it's still quite a big procedure and some of the patients have multiple comorbidities, multiple things wrong with them, of which the aortic valve is one. And, and therefore, it can often be a question, oh, is this, you know, yes, we could give you, technically, we can give you a new heart valve. Is that at this reasonable risk? Is that going to make a sufficient difference to your life for it to have been worth running that risk, etc.? And those are the difficult conversations. Some, some patients, of course, it's very straightforward. You know, thank goodness this is available. Yes, you can have it and we'll get it done for you. But some, it's very much more difficult to decide. And the hardest ones are the ones where you really feel it isn't in the patient's best interest, but both the patient and their family are sort of 
hoping that it will revolutionize them and, and sort of turn the clock back 10 years for them. So that's, that's a difficult area. It, it, the second thing you said about the surgeons, I think, is, is really important as well. I mean, we absolutely need cardiac surgeons. And again, we had a case just the other day where we had done something quite novel. In the end, it had not worked. And we absolutely required the cardiac surgeon to fix the problem. But we do need fewer cardiac surgeons than we did before. And it's a hard time to be a cardiac surgeon because, of course, the patients come along, they see them, they counsel them, say, yes, we're going to do a valve replacement, we're going to do it like this, blah, blah, blah. And at the end, the patient says, I heard everything you say, doctor, but could I, could I have the one that goes up the leg in the blood vessel? I mean, I'd rather prefer that than having my chest open. So it's, a, it's in some respects, a tough time to be a cardiac surgeon, yeah. but there are still lots of things that only they can do. So I think in Brighton, we have really good working relations with our surgeons. We have a weekly meeting. We bring cases that we think they are better placed to do. They bring cases that they feel we're better placed to do. So I think we have really good working relations. But it's not, it's not like that everywhere. Uh, and, it, and it can get a bit adversarial because of the, the amount of work that cardiology is taking from cardiac surgery. Yeah, it, you know, the parallel from my world when, when I was a surgical trainee, you know, one learned to do a feeding jejunostomy, and then along came percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy, or PEG, which I learned to do and I loved doing, and the gastroenterologists were, were doing, and then along came ultrasound-guided gastrostomy. And um, yeah. the hospital I worked at, um, I convened a working group of, of all specialties and said, when we have a patient who needs a gastrostomy, why don't we all get together and decide on which route is the best, whether it's a surgical, a PEG, an ultrasound. Well, let's just do the right thing for the patient and set aside our own personal um, biases. And, you know, that strikes me. That's what interventional cardiology is, because you've, you know, it, it, to, to all intents and purposes, it's a surgical intervention, but it's done by people with different training. And maybe 20 years from now, um, you know, the only cardio, cardiothoracic surgery will be trauma, maybe. Uh, things change. Yeah. Things change. Yeah. No, things change. I mean, it, what you remind me a little bit there, saying what you did about one of the, one of the modern things, which is a, a bit of a double-edged sword, which is the MDT. So the multidisciplinary team meeting. And it's on the one hand, it's really good. But on the other hand, it takes up a great deal of consultant time. And quite often, a patient will be being discussed in some detail, and the MDT will be making decisions about. And actually, nobody in the room has seen the patient, you know, because it's somebody else's patient, somebody else has put them forward for discussion. They happen not to be there that week. And so you know, there is a danger because in our MDT, we will try to say, yes, that's what we think sounds like the best thing. But somebody needs to sit down in front of the patient and discuss it with them because it may not be, you know, when faced with the actual patient, this, this MDT decision may actually be wrong. Yeah or not what the patient wants. Exactly. Forbid. So let's look at some procedures. You've done a lot, over 6,000 angioplasties, 1,500 closures of atrial septic defects and patent foramina ovale, 2,500 
transcatheter aortic valves and 700 valvuloplasties. Which do you find? I mean, that's a lot of lives. <laughs> that really is. So kudos to you. Well, which of these do you find the most challenging or rewarding? And I presume the synergy between skill, your skill, imaging, improvements in Im- imaging, improvements of instrumentation that all feed from one another to make yes. these procedures ever better and more efficient. Uh, so can you, can you address yes. those two, two perspectives? So, so I suppose the, in terms of what, what I find most satisfying, it, it is, um, unfortunately, it plays to my ego and vanity, which is that um, if, if somebody else, for example, has uh, not been able to do a procedure or not um, had the necessary equipment or whatever, and I get asked to see if I can help to fix it, and then I'm able to fix it, of course, that, that does give me great satisfaction. I mean, it probably shouldn't be quite like that. And I recognize sort of the frailty in me and uh, that, that feels good about that. But there is something strong that it, particularly a patient who's, who's really uh, pinning their hopes on you being able to fix something. So when we can do that, um, and they are otherwise in a bit of a corner, uh, that is incredibly satisfying. So that may be, for example, unblocking a long-standing blockage in coronary arteries, or it may be doing a valve procedure where another surgical center has decided it's too high risk or the the technology isn't quite appropriate. And and we may get asked to, to take some things on like that. And, and of course, when they go well, you know, everybody in the department feels good. And of course, most importantly, the patient has got a good result. Of course, there is the the flip side of that when things that you are expecting to go well, run into complications. And you know, that's the, that's the, that's the whole thing about medicine, you know, you, you have to take the rough with the smooth. And sometimes when you feel that, oh, I'm getting quite good at this, you then have a complication, etc. So it keeps you Keeps you level. Yeah, very much so. And the the synergy of innovations in as you get better, you need better imaging. As better imaging comes along, you realize you need better instrumentation. Does it work like that in your world? Yes. I mean, there's a great deal of competition, particularly from the companies who make the devices. And you realize, in fact, my colleague Adam DeBelda, when I first joined Brighton, as a new, young, enthusiastic cardiologist, he said to me, Dave, you do understand that it's the companies that run cardiology. Uh, <laughs> and he was, he was pointing out that actually all the, all the research, all the device and equipment research that is done to, to facilitate the interventions is done actually by the, the companies that make the devices compete with each other for the business. Um, so yes, there's a constant evolution of bits of equipment and sometimes, and we're lucky to be able to do this in Brighton, we get to use new things very early on, um, partly because of our research pedigree. And that means that we're very integrally involved in the process of refining, um, early 
equipment to make it better and to improve it. And it's a, yes, constantly evolving process. But if you look at some of the things that we can do now, even compared with 10 years ago, you would think, goodness, yes, I'm, I'm quite surprised that things have moved on quickly and, and they, they will continue to do so. Right. So um, I've, I've always enjoyed innovation and frankly, have, have really enjoyed collaborating with various companies uh, to, to help develop stuff. And, you know, there are certain favoured companies whose philosophy and moral compass um, makes it easier to work with. But, you know, I, I call out to them because without them, we wouldn't be able to do the, the, the stuff we do. Certainly all the laparoscopic um, uh, interventions I was able to were, were, were facilitated. Otherwise, I'd have been using a rusty pen knife and a coat hanger. And that, no, absolutely. It would have really worked. So what, what, what's the most recent innovation that's, that's got you excited? So we have over the last, so, so 15 years ago, it was transcatheter aortic valve intervention. So that's the whole big new thing, if you like, during my career. Uh, so that has revolutionized the way that people will have a new aortic valve, and that has exploded around the world. The, the, the more recent innovation is in trying to replicate some of that success with the mitral valve. Uh, which lies between the atrium and the ventricle on the left-hand side. And this is a much more complex structure. Uh, and it is proving extremely, uh, extremely demanding to try to get uh, transcatheter methods to work uh, to, to replicate some of what the surgeons are doing. So it's very interesting uh, working on this. And it's fascinating seeing just how difficult it is to replicate some of the fine things that surgeons do, for example, in mitral valve repair, and, and trying to emulate that uh, with a catheter-based method is, you know, it's, it's taken 10 years and we've made some progress, but it's quite slow. So that, that has been and will continue to be a fascinating area of development. Yeah, so we'll go watch this space. So yeah. a bit of a sideways thing, and it's it's like a personal bugbear for me. You walk around any big city these days, and it's impossible to avoid plumes of sweet-smelling vape smoke. And they're largely marketed as a means to, if you will, do without cigarettes. And we all know that getting rid of cigarettes would be a good thing for humanity. What are the latest data from the perspectives of cardiovascular damage that these devices prove? produce because i struggle to understand how inhaling effectively organic chemicals into your lungs can be good for your lungs or your blood vessels well, what are you telling patients yes i mean it's it, it's not good you know nice clean air is the best um a lot of the damage with smoking is uh, obviously, the nicotine is the addictive part, but the smoke itself, the smokiness, is the stuff which makes the blood sticky and means that young people have heart attacks. Now, to what extent getting rid of some of that smoke and making it sort of water vapor and carbon dioxide allied to some sticky gunge that makes it smell nice or not nice... Uh, is I think hard to say at the moment, and I don't think I don't think there's anything that is absolutely clear. Yes, breathing clean air would be better, uh, 
And what I tend to tell people, I try to avoid being proscriptive because I don't think it's very helpful if, as a doctor, you say to a patient, you've had a heart attack, you have to give up smoking. Because, of course, well, that's up to them. What, what my job is, is to say, you've had a heart attack, the thing that will reduce your risk of having another one more than anything else would be to stop smoking. And, and, and that has to be their decision. You know, do they, do they not stop smoking? I don't, I don't like being too didactic with people. I don't think it's very helpful. Um, it, vaping, I think, you know, probably the general feeling is that it's significantly less harmful than smoking due to the actual smoke particles, tar content, etc. But yes, it's unproven thus far. Yeah, well, like I say, I, I, I personally, it drives me up the bloody <laughs> having to deal with it because everyone's doing it. And of course, uh, with the uh, decriminalization of uh, cannabis in many places, um, it's impossible to walk around most big cities without feeling the urge to buy a packet of chips and listen to the Grateful Dead. Um, <laughs> so I want to dig into some of your papers. In 2018, you published an article in The Lancet entitled out of hospital cardiac arrest in hospital intervention strategies. A, a, oh, yes. a, a colleague of mine was a medical advisor for a very well-known TV series. And I once chastised him and said, do you think you're doing a public service where everyone who has a cardiac arrest in your TV show not only recovers, but ends up falling madly in love with the beautiful young nurse? And he says, believe you me, when I get the script, I kill them all off. But the director wants what's exciting. Can you talk to us a little bit about that paper and what we can do more as a society to teach people about cardiac resuscitation, provide more defibrillators and so on? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so that paper was particularly about in-hospital strategies. So yep. what often happens in hospital is that the ambulance people have gone out to a call, they've got somebody, they've tried their hardest to resuscitate them, they, the heart is going, and they bring them into hospital. And then you have to work out what do you, what should you do. And it's a very difficult scenario because quite often, unfortunately, uh, it, although the heart is going, the brain has died. So trying to work out what you can measure in terms of how much acid is in the blood, how much oxygen is in the blood, uh, how, how, how their brain is functioning at the moment, are there any signs that the brain activity is going on? Um, and, and you have to try and combine those in order to make sure that you, you support those who are most likely to survive and you avoid uh, supporting people who may end up in a sort of rather vegetative state to, to no one's advantage. So that, that's, that's, the, that's the in-hospital side of it. And, and of course, there are many cases where people have been resuscitated out of hospital and defibrillated. And of course, they're brought in alive, awake, we can fix the heart, and that's fantastic. But, but by the time they've come to hospital, the die is really cast in the vast majority of cases. Uh, and it's the out-of-hospital stuff that is, that is really crucial. And of all the things that can be done for 
for, for resuscitation. The, the, the biggest, of course, is just availability of automatic defibrillators. Because when somebody collapses on a railway station um, with a heart attack, usually it's a heart attack, not always, but usually, um, a, th a third of them will die you know, with their first presentation of heart trouble. So a defibrillator in that situation can completely save their life because what's happened is an artery or a branch artery of the heart has become blocked. That's caused the heart muscles suddenly to go into rhythm like a sort of shaking jelly. And as a result, the heart doesn't pump any blood round, the brain can't work, the patient falls to the ground. But a defibrillator applied will automatically register, is there a rhythm that we can fix here or is there not? And if there is, it will apply the shock and that is very commonly life-saving. So, you know, it, it, rather, than, rather than have lots of learning about chest compressions and airway management and stuff like that, actually the defibrillator is the thing. You get the automatic defibrillator, stick it on, it will deliver the shock. That that will save the person's life if if they're salvageable. Right, right. So um, actually, another side question that um, there have been a number of high profile episodes with very fit footballers suffering cardiac arrest. Christian Eriksen, who used to play for my team, Tottenham Hotspur, um, collapsed during the um, the internationals, and actually. An ex-Spurs player, Justin Edinburgh, uh, collapsed and died, as did another guy, Ugo Hiyogu. And then many years, yeah. ago, many years ago, five or six years ago, a chap named Fabrice Muamba yes. collapsed at a game and was thankfully resuscitated. Yeah, What's going on with it? Can you, can you brief everyone as to what the likely cause is and what we should be doing to screen for it amongst our elite athletes? Yeah, so, I mean, it's almost always ventricular fibrillation initiated in a, in a heart, which is essentially normal, bar the fact that it has become strongly conditioned through activity and possibly has some genetic component where, of course, some people are more prone to it than others. Now, differentiating between those is quite difficult because when you're an elite athlete, your heart muscle will become slightly thicker not that much, but slightly. And so differentiating that from a, a genetically abnormal heart where the muscle is significantly thicker can be difficult. And, and elite sports people do go through um, testing, echocardiography, um, myocardial uh, imaging, magnetic resonance imaging, etc., to have a look at their susceptibility for this kind of phenomenon. It won't. It won't ever be possible to to rule out this kind of thing happening. But the the key thing again for me is that all these pitches there should be an automatic defibrillator. It's quite common, and and it happened in some of these cases you described, for people to see somebody collapsed, and there's quite a lot of people standing around and and nobody's really doing anything because everyone's shocked and. This person is essentially dying in front of them. And, and the thing that will save them is the defibrillator. And so all sports grounds should have these devices readily available because 
however well you train people, it's quite shocking when somebody just collapses in front of you and you, you sort of look at them yeah. and think, oh, they don't look a very good color. And, and then after a while, you might think, I'm not even sure they're breathing. And of course, they're dying. You know, but, but people stand around and, and groupthink prevents anyone actually doing anything for a bit until somebody takes charge and goes, wait a second, this person's dying. Mm. And, um, you know, so, so it's hard to get past that human shock response. Uh, and yeah. so having the defibrillator is the, the crucial thing. Because if the, if the patient just, if the person just has collapsed and something, the, the defibrillator won't deliver a shock. Yes. So, you know, that, that's the smartest thing we have in that circumstance. We need, we need to educate kids at school and just make it a part yeah. of the narrative and we can save lives. So yeah, the defibrillator. Sorry for that aside, but um, no. going back to your literature, in 2017, you published a paper reporting on the REDUCE study looking at closure of uh, patent foramen ovale, PFO, to prevent stroke. Tell us about that study. And also, um, it shows how out of date I probably am. I recall hearing that PFO was linked to migraine. Is that true or has it been debunked? <laughs> You are not out of date at all, and it is absolutely true. Uh, I'll deal with the reduced study first, then come back to migraine. So basically, for, for many years, people were perplexed by the fact that young people, say aged 40 or something, would have um, a stroke. And it would be unclear. Why on earth have they had a stroke suddenly? They seemed pretty fit and well, and uh, they don't have any clogging up of the arteries, but they've just had a stroke. Why is this? And... In the 1980s and 90s, it was found that there was a much higher prevalence of what's called a patent frame nevali, so a connection between the, the right and left atrium in the body that is effectively a bypass of the lungs. So if a tiny bit of clot came up into the right atrium, normally it would go into the lungs, the lungs would cheerfully chomp it up over a couple of months, and it would disappear and do no harm. But if it goes across this connection from the right to the left and suddenly it's in a territory where it can do havoc and if it goes to the brain it will cause a stroke so the association became clear and then the issue was well if we close the pfo can we prove that the people have fewer strokes in the future and that ended up being a massive uh, undertaking which required three or four huge studies in different parts of the world and some amalgamation of data to show ultimately what people believed to be true, which was that yes, having your PFO closed in that setting uh, reduces your risk of having subsequent strokes. So finally, that was proven and funding eventually followed. Um, as, as regards migraine, it's a really interesting story actually. There is an association, and it's still not exactly understood why, Patients who have problematic migraine, particularly with migranous aura, uh, have about a 50% chance of having a PFO. And that compares with the standard chance, which is about 20 to 25%. So there is uh, quite a high prevalence in patients with migraine. There is also a high reduction in migranous experience if you're having your PFO closed because you've had a stroke and you happen to have migraine. And in fact, that's the way the, the discovery was first made. The patients were coming back to clinic and saying, 
Well, thanks very much for closing my PFO, Doc. And by the way, you know, since I've had this closed, it's really strange, but I, I haven't been having my migraines. And once that had been realized, oh, what, what, what is the link here? Then some studies were done. Unfortunately, the studies have failed to prove the, the group in whom this therapy could be targeted. And, and there was quite a lot of controversy around it. So it's, it's been a, an area that still needs to have some refined research to identify. But definitely some patients with migraine respond to having PFO closure. Well, uh, thank you so much for that. The, the, my motivation for asking was very selfish. A friend of mine who'd been having troublesome uh, uh, issues with, I never know, is it migraine or migraine? I lived in the half <laughs> my life, so I mispronounce lots of things. I think if it's yours, then it's migraine. Yeah, <laughs> it's migraine versus That's your bad. grain. Very bad joke. Very um, bad. But yeah, a friend uh, mentioned that this was an issue, and I'd recalled seeing that and suggested that they get... Uh, uh, get a visit with a cardiologist. Oh, it's fascinating. Thank you. So another, the third article I wanted to, when I was going through your CV and reviewing stuff was the 2016 article in Lancet, um, the Noble study that compared percutaneous coronary angioplasty to coronary artery bypass grafts in treating an unprotected left main artery stenosis. Oh, yeah. Um, I think it's uh, quite obvious, but what did it share? What, what Share with us what, what, what that... Um, revealed. Yeah, so, the, so the, the deal with that study, if you like, was left main coronary artery stenosis was uh, very much the last preserve of the cardiac surgeon uh, in terms of coronary artery disease. So it was very much felt, no, if you've got that, you need a bypass operation, nothing else will do. But that was increasingly challenged. Of course, patients who couldn't have surgery had stents and they went okay generally. So the, these studies got developed say well let's directly compare the two and of course what we found was that stent treatment for left main coronary artery disease is also perfectly good there are some differences if you never want to see a doctor again then a bypass operation is a very good option but you have to accept a slightly higher risk of death a slightly higher risk of stroke and of course the morbidity associated with having had your chest opened and an open heart surgery. If, however, you don't want to have the, the, the major trauma, if you like, of surgery, then a stent can be done at low risk of stroke or death or morbidity, but there's a higher chance that you may have to come back sometime in the future to have something else done. So it's a trade-off and, you know, patients will choose based on their preferences, faced with that scenario. Yeah. So, um, huge surprise. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, you mentioned earlier about being a journalist, and you did try your hand at a different kind of writing other than the, uh, the scientific article, which, of course, requires a totally different discipline. I've been trying to write a novel for years. I've written hordes of papers and a few textbooks, but, boy, it's a very different type of writing. You wrote uh, for a while for a magazine for general practitioners. Don't you think that the more doctors share with one another and across specialties, and frankly, with the general public, as we were talking about um, addressing um, cardiac arrest, don't you think that's better for all of us? And might you do some more of this kind of writing in the future? 
Yeah, I might do. I mean, I, I irritate the papers periodically by writing letters to them about things. I wrote a, something recently about mask wearing and COVID and stuff like that, which my hospital doesn't think that well of me for. <laughs> but I sort of can't resist. But um, yes, I think, I think in general, having uh, m medical medically informed people able to write and uh, share the experience of um, what the general public sees and says, because of course doctors are privileged in the fact that we see people from everywhere um, coming to hospitals, so we get a very broad range of views expressed. Um, and I think it's good for, the discipline of writing is good uh, the ability to share information that's come into hospitals um, with the general public is good. So yes, I, I, I think anybody who shows an interest and aptitude for writing, I strongly encourage them. Excellent. So in, in closing, David, I, I love asking all my guests some version of this question. If you had three wishes that would lead to improvement in cardiac care, in cardiology, what would they be? Oh, crikey. Uh, uh, three wishes. Right. Um, uh, firstly, very selfishly, I'd like someone to, to develop a, uh, a drug which meant that I didn't have to get up at night to treat people with heart attacks. Um, simply because, I mean, I know that sounds rather selfish, nothing, but uh, it's, it's quite hard for a whole career to, to be uh, on the end of phone calls at 2 a.m., demanding that you you get yourself into hospital to to fix uh, arteries that have become blocked off and um, yeah, that would make a huge difference not not just selfishly but in terms of recruitment and retention to an interventional specialty uh, that would be that would be one thing um, the second thing I suppose would be I would wish that it was accepted more, I wish it would be more accepted or more acceptable not to be uh, completely um, motivated only by the guidelines and the guidance and I must give you this blood pressure tablet because I see your blood pressure is X. Yes. Uh, and, and, to, and that it, there should be, it's difficult to, to know how it would happen, but there should be more acceptance, if you like, or more willingness to think um, in a more lateral way and be prepared to have a consultation with the patient which is not didactic and is a kind of, your blood pressure is high, so these are the options and blah, blah, blah. And, and if the, as long as the patient knows what the information is that you can tell them, then they must be allowed to make the choices and not feel that they've made a wrong choice or a bad choice. And so I think there's a great deal of too much following the guidelines slavishly for fear of being criticized yeah and i i i would strongly feel that it's it's important to individualize medicine in a way which often isn't done at the moment hmm. um i suppose my third one would go somewhere along that line as well and i hope this doesn't sound Yes, I, I hope this doesn't sound kind of depressing, but but I, well, I hope it doesn't. Anyway, what what we what we have in intervention is an incredible ability to do procedures and to do things for patients, technical 
demanding, um, complicated things for patients. But what we are often faced with, and I think in America it's much worse, but in, in the UK and in Europe, we're faced often with people who, who are reaching the end of their lives and for whom uh, an intervention is really the last thing that they need. And that what we don't do very well in cardiology is take the time, have the time to be able to spend it saying to somebody, these are the, these are the many things that are troubling you. We, we could technically fix the valve um, at some risk, but do, are, are you sure that, that if, if we made your breathing a little bit better, are you sure? that that would be worth those risks, so that, that that would make your life that much better. Because what, we, what we're not very good, and I'm uh, getting around to my point here <laughs> slightly circuitously, is that I think acceptance of death is something which is poorly done. Acceptance of the imminence of death, acceptance of the transition from the time where you're, you're striving to fix people to the time when you should not be striving to fix them because they can't be fixed now. What they can be is um, given treatments and care and comfort that helps them as they get through perhaps that last year of their life and not collude sometimes with unrealistic expectations. So, so you really, really be able to have those difficult conversations where everyone realizes that okay, we, we've, we've reached the end of the road of actually doing physical things to you to try to improve things, but, and now we should embrace the fact that we, it's, we're in a new period. You're, you, you, know, you, you are coming towards the end of your life, and we need to switch focus. And that's a difficult thing to do, and it takes time. And I'm not saying for a second that I'm good at it, but I think it is something that cardiology, and interventional cardiology in particular, should try to have some focus on. Loved everything you said, and I would broaden the last comment to say, I don't think any of any medical specialists are particularly good at it. Um, I know it's something I always struggled with professionally and personally with yeah. when my father was reaching the end of his life. And frankly, society, we don't yeah, yeah, absolutely. Of it. And, you know, we try to push it away. And, and, you know, I did practice in America for many years and it, and it is worse there. I mean, the percentage of people who can die in the comfort of their own homes surrounded by their families, um, you know, I forget the exact percentage, but something like some massive percentage of Medicare dollars are spent on the last two weeks of life and, yeah. you know, doing things that are not going to improve. Yeah. You know, I fly airplanes for giggles and we, of course, right. in, in aviation, we use the term wingspan and in medicine we use the term lifespan and perhaps we should focus more on health span um yeah things to improve that david i've really enjoyed speaking to you and sadly that's all we have time for today so i want to thank our guest professor david hildick smith for taking the time to join with me today and by the way before we came on we were having technical difficulties that lasted an awfully long time. And instead of getting frustrated and throwing the toys out the pram, David was an amazing good sport and just said, no, nope, I'm invested in this. We're going to make it happen. So David, <laughs> thank you for the time. Thank you for your research. And thank you for all you do for patients. Oh, 
Thank you very much. That's extremely kind. I've very much enjoyed it. So, folks, um, if you've enjoyed this episode, please, as it's appropriate to say, like us on social media. That's the EMJ podcast. And please subscribe for future episodes and dig into the archives. There are plenty of wonderful podcasts there. And please join us next week for another foray into the amazing world of medicine. Until then, stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.